Well, friends, as we come back to the book of John this morning, last week I began by asking a very simple, but I think a very provocative question. What is God like? What is God like? And as we explore John 1.14, one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, we saw exactly what God is like. We saw a, a very succinct but glorious answer to that question of what God is like. Or to put it this way, we come to know the eternal, everlasting God in the very person, as we saw in 1.14, in the very person of Jesus Christ. And this is the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is. And as a church, this is what we want to both celebrate and display. We want to celebrate who Jesus is, and we want to display that to, to one another and to the watching world. Which brings us to another question I want to pose to you this morning as we continue in our study. If Jesus, I'll put it this way, if then, if Jesus is glorious, if He is beautiful, as we have sung this morning, then how ought we to celebrate and display that truth? This is a question that's often unasked, especially in local churches. If Jesus is glorious and beautiful, and there are many churches that believe this, but they never get to the second part of the question, then how ought we to celebrate who Jesus is? How ought we to display this glorious truth? Or to ask the question more pointedly to you individually, how do you describe God? How do you speak of God? How do you describe who He is? If you were approached by a stranger on the street or a child around the dinner table and they ask you what God is like, what would you say? And to put the question to you in an even more pointed way, oh yeah, it gets more pointed. How is your life marked, shaped, and directed by not just knowing what God is like, but also by making Him known to those around you? How is your life shaped and marked by making God known to the people in your life? As we come back to our study of John's introduction, his gospel introduction, return this morning to the work of John the Baptist. Not John who authored the book, the Apostle John. Well, we're going to return back to this other John, John the Baptist. You may remember, hopefully you remember if you were here, that he's mentioned previously in John 1, back in verses 6 through 8. It was there we learned several key truths about who John was, and I'll recap those for us in just a moment. But today, almost not almost, I think on purpose, as if our author is working his way backward through the same material that he's already presented. We find John the Baptist now mentioned again, but we are not told specifically the same thing over. But instead, as we come to John 1.15, we receive some new information about his central message, his, his confession, if you will. And we are offered, again, great encouragement in our own celebrating and displaying of the glorious Christ. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and join me again in John 1. John 1, 1 through 18. 
the Gospel writer John's introduction. As always, if you forgot your Bible, we have provided some there, black Bibles there in front of you in the pew, our pew Bibles, and John's Gospel can be found on page 833. Also, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, there are also some Bibles there in the pew that are blue. We would love to give you that Bible as a gift if you need a Bible of your own today. So you can take that Bible with you uh, and take it home, begin to read it. And as you read it, pray and ask God that He would help you to understand this book that He has given us. Well, friends, let me invite you to stand once more in the honor of reading of God's Word as I read to us today from John 1, 1 through 18. Hear now the Word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated, friends. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, a few weeks ago, we took up verses 6 through 8 and began to understand in those verses the four parts that are laid out there that John lays out for us of who John the Baptist was and what he was sent to do. We saw, you look back there at verses 6 through 8, we saw that there was a man sent from God. We saw first that, that, that John was called, that he had received a calling from God himself. He was sent from God. But the second thing we saw was what his work was. He was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. He came as a witness. This was the very task that God had called John to. And what was the end goal? He came as a witness. Why? To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. The goal of John the Baptist was to present the light that had come so that all who heard of it, even to this very day, as we read the account here in our own Bibles, might believe through the very work of John's proclamation. And this all led in the end then, in verse 8, to the posture that John had to have in order to do this great work. It was not a posture of pride and arrogance, of demanding his own way, of showing up and saying, look at me, look at me. No, we see there in verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
And at the conclusion of our time in that sermon, those verses led us to two big truths I want to remind you of because they kind of create the foundation for where we're going to go today in verse 15. First, we saw that John played the unique and special role of being the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was, in essence, the final prophet before the coming of the great prophet, the great Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. John is the forerunner coming to the people of God. He was the voice, as Isaiah says, of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. But, although John was unique, the other big truth that we learned, we also walked away with a better understanding of our own calling that we, like John, receive some of the same calls. We receive some of the same charges and commands from God Himself. That we, no different for sure, have been called also to be heralds of Jesus Christ. That we are not called to waste our words on meaningless things, but we are called to speak of the glories of Christ. We are called to give ourselves to the work of, of evangelism and discipleship to missions at home and abroad. We are called to do exactly what John has done. And that is to make Christ known through proclaiming this glorious good news in Jesus' coming and His living and His dying and His rising again and ascending to the Father's right side. Which brings us back to today's verse in verse 15. We are given new information now about John, which on the surface may seem odd and out of place. So let's put verse 15 in context. In fact, many of our translations of the Bible into English from the Greek here may even have this sentence, verse 15, in parentheses. I won't ask you children what parentheses signify. No use to get into grammar class while we're here. But for lack of thinking of it a, a more complex way, these, these parentheses would show just an inserted comment, a note by the author. Hey, hey, just note this as, as we're going along. But this is a bit of an odd place to introduce a parentheses. Because you've got to think of what came right before it. Think about verse 14 and all that is being said in that verse. Let me read it again, just so, so you understand. And the word... The, the eternal Word, the Word that was God, the Word that was with God, that Word, the very mind of God Himself, became flesh. He became flesh and He dwelt, He tabernacled, He tented with us. And in His coming, the very glory of God the Father has been made known. It is a glory that is marked with God's grace and God's truth. And this is a, a, a magnificent and majestic verse in our Bibles. Now look at verse 16 that we're going to look at next week. It's equally heavy. For from His, it's talking about the word Jesus again, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Wow, what good news for us to hear in a world of trouble and woe in a world of, of works where we feel like we have to constantly do, 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 do that we have received grace from Christ's fullness from what He accomplished. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon on that verse yet. We'll get there. But you have these great two verses in 14 and 16. Why in the world is 15 right here in the middle? What has it got to do with anything at all? Why does, why does John insert this? 
Well, it might seem like a dud of a verse. What I want to offer to you this morning are three things that we learn in this verse. And I think you'll see how key this verse actually is to moving us further into the history of Jesus Christ's incarnation. And so here are the three things I want us to look at in verse 15, hopefully to answer that question. Hopefully to get the question that I've asked here in the beginning of how you describe God. And here they are. I want us to see the declaration, the concentration, and the exaltation. Try to make all of those rhyme so you could remember them. If you want to write them down, those are the three things we're going to look at. The declaration, the concentration, and the exaltation. And as we do, my prayer for us this morning, that as we see the ministry of John the Baptist now unfold even more, that we could not help but join with him in declaring the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. So let's start with considering the declaration. The verse begins there with two verbs that further describe the work of John. Look back at it. It says there, John bore witness about him and cried out. Two verbs, two actions there, the bearing witness and the crying out. And these are, these are used intentionally by the author to help us understand exactly what John is doing. Most of the time when we come to verses like this, we're tempted to just move on. Perhaps because it seems to have little meaning or we believe that we know exactly what is being said here. But we should be careful not to miss the weight of what is being told to us. See, we know, as I mentioned a moment ago, that John's called to this great task in verse 6, six through 8. They sin from God. He's come to bear witness about the light. We're told that God himself has called John for the specific task of bearing witness so how is this, what we see here in 15, any different? We see here nothing less than the assurance that John actually did it. It's not just in verse 6 that he's called to bear witness. But now here in verse 15, we find that, and he bore witness. And friends, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but if you've read your Bible for any amount of time, you know that God tells us to do a lot of things, and many of us, as we have a prayer of confession each week, fail to do them, do we not? But what we find here in John is such a zeal to obey the Lord that he actually does exactly what God has called him to do. The task was bearing witness. So the gospel tells us that John bore witness, that he, he, he testified, that he made known, that he confessed, that he declared. And this is the main goal of the preaching ministry of John himself, that he would make known the riches of Jesus Christ that he would reveal that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, sent one of God. And what's more, the use of this phrase, to bear witness here, is not used in the past tense, as if he bore witness and is no longer doing so. But interestingly enough, the way that it's written here in the Greek, it's as if we're told that John is still bearing witness to this day of who Jesus Christ is. What an interesting way of putting it. And, but friends, isn't that true? I mean, even in the hearing of this sermon today, us few who are here in this room, are we not hearing the testimony of this man? We'll explore the subject of, of his declaration here in just a moment. But before that, we cannot miss not only the fulfillment of John's calling here, but in that second verb, we're told how he fulfilled it. Look back. The text goes on to say in verse 15 that he, that he cried out. He, he cried out. 
Now, this crying out is not a temper tantrum crying out, okay? This is not that kind of crying out. No, this is what makes John's confession more than a mere statement made. This crying out is a joyful, excited, zealous, words fail me, declaration. This is what John's confession is all about. It's what we're going to come to find in the new year once we move to the end of John chapter 1 when the book picks up a detailed account of John's work, is that John was not to be found in back rooms. John was not to be found in the living rooms of the Jewish people. He didn't go and ask the high priest. He's like, hey, high priest, I, I want to tell you about this Messiah. Can you come over here with me in the corner and let me whisper it to you? No, this is not the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist does not invite the Jewish people out for tea so that he can encourage them. He does not send off little postcards to let the people know. No, we are told that he cried out. That there was no question about the message and the ministry of John the Baptist because he was openly, boldly, zealously declaring and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That on the one hand, there was a great need for repentance and cleansing that came through repentance. And on the other hand, here comes the very one who can cleanse you. Here comes the very one that we have been longing for, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. This is how we must, might summarize all that John said, at least for what we have record of, that John exposed sin and heralded the Savior. He showed them the problem and spoke of them of the cure. He was a prophet then in the truest sense, revealing the sins of God's people and calling them back to God's Word. Only this time it was God's Word made flesh. John's ministry was a ministry of making known. Therefore he had to with a loud voice preach Christ and Christ alone. And yet we might ask, was there any glory in this? Is this something we should really tout as a good example? Was there anything of benefit to John in this? I mean, for those of you who have read your Bibles, know what happens to John in the end. He loses his head for standing up for morality, against adultery and against divorce. And it cost him his head on a platter. So are we to believe then that there's any glory in John's ministry? Are we to believe that John was just some outdoorsy guy who enjoyed being in the wilderness, wearing camel hair clothing and eating locusts and wild honey? And he just, that was just who he was. He loved doing that. After all, this is what Matthew tells us in Matthew 3, 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so in this ministry, this declaring that John takes up, is there anything worth emulating? Is there any glory in it? Why would John do this? Why would he give himself to this crying out? And friends, the simple answer is because the glory 
that John was after was the glory that came in knowing and declaring the one who had come to save sinners. And here's why I bring this out. Because in John's declaring, as we will come to see, there's a certain ugliness to it. There's a certain ugliness to what John does. There's a certain distaste that we might come away with. We may look at a man like John the Baptist, or any of the prophets for that matter, and walk away thinking, well, God, thank you. I'm so thankful that, that God called men like that at certain times. And I'm thankful that God has not called me to that. And yet, do we ever stop and ask ourselves if He has? I believe that many of us have never even entered into such a question because we believe that there is no glory, that there is no good, that there is no lasting benefit to giving your life to costly crying out, This is Him! This is the One! Is that not what we ought to be giving ourselves to? I mean, after all, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5.11... Since we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. This is what Paul tells young Timothy. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is not what Paul says. His entire thesis for the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And friends, is this not what Jesus Christ Himself tells us? In fact, we read at the end of Mark, Mark 16, 15, that Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And yet, why is it that we never consider if John's ministry of declaration ought to be our own ministry of declaration? Now granted, I don't think that God's called all of us to put on camel's hair, to move out to the wilderness. But there are some particular aspects of John's ministry that at least in my study of the Scriptures seem to be an ongoing call upon God's people. And yet, I believe there are two fundamental reasons that we do not take it up. And so let me give them to you, these two reasons, from the smaller to the larger, or the lesser reason to the greater reason, which you may not think the lesser reason feels all that less once you hear it. But it is, trust me. Why don't we take up the ministry of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ with zeal and excitement and joy like we see in John? I believe that the first reason we do not do this, whether it be in our homes or our workplaces or even amongst one another, is because it is risky. It is a risky thing to do. It requires a certain amount of risk. Now maybe that's not the word you would put on it, Maybe you would call it hard or too much work. Maybe you'd say you aren't good with words or, or you didn't, you, you'd even say that, that you don't really like people that much if you're really being honest. But at its, as its base, at its base, it seems as far as we go that many of us 
when it comes to declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ are all flight and no fight. That we run from any and every opportunity because we feel the risk of speaking. Just think of it this way. Moms, let me talk to you for a minute. Moms, what great risk you run in sitting around the table and reading the Bible with your children and seeking to encourage them to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. Think about all that could happen. No one stays seated. This kid gets up, you get them sat down. The other kid gets up, they sit down, try to get... Someone keeps interrupting, talking about how they have to go to the bathroom where they spilled this thing or that. They ask questions that are sometimes too hard for you to answer. And in the end, the children may just reject everything that they've heard. See how biblical parenting is risky. Many of us know it's no different in the workplace, especially in our modern times. To speak of Christ can feel like a death sentence. You may lose respect or position. You may be left out of the conversation. You may be passed over for that promotion. And so we avoid it. We declare it quietly in the corners. We would never actually share the gospel with the cashier at the grocery store or our atheist neighbor next door. Because what if they hate us? What if they tell us that we're stupid? What if they never want to talk to us again? And that's the human reason, I believe, that we are not more risky in our gospel declaration. We are not more bold in our declaration of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to give you the solution yet. You're going to have to hang on. You're going to have to live in the tension of that. Sometimes it's a good thing. I won't, do that every, I won't want to do that every sermon. But right now, let's sit in that. Because that, in my mind, is not the biggest and weightiest reason we do not take up the ministry of John. Now, I think there's an even heavier aspect that weighs down our joyful confession of Jesus Christ as Lord of all. And it's this. The reason we do not shout the glories of God is because we know very little of those glories in our own life. What do I mean? I mean that our Christian proclamation may be missing because we don't actually have very much worth proclaiming. There's not much to say about Jesus because there's not much of Jesus at work in our lives. There's little to declare because the good news we know means so little in how we actually live. And this is where we ought to take stock, especially if we believe that Jesus' words in Matthew 9, 37 are true, that the harvest is plentiful and yet the workers are few. So why are the workers few? It's here that Christ has not become much to us. He has not become central he has not become all-consuming, the all-consuming core of our very lives. And so let's look back at our text then as we see how John's own life is marked by this central concentration. So point two, the concentration. Here we go. John bore witness about him, Jesus, the light, the Word made flesh, and cried out. What did he cry out? This was he of whom I said. Now I want to stop there because this gets at the second big problem in our own declaration. 
Again, this little phrase, this was he of whom I said, it seems simple enough. It seems like, like a connecting phrase. There's not much meat on the bone here. And yet, what a great treasure to consider here how John even describes himself. I began by asking how you would describe God, but friend, how would you describe yourself? Could you say the very thing that John says about himself here? Could we say this of ourselves as a church body? See this phrase, this, of he, this is he of whom I said, it gets used again later in chapter 1 in the actual story of John the Baptist's ministry, in the actual narrative of the thing. And that's why, that's why many think that this is simply an inserted comment here in verse 15. But what it reveals to us is that John's entire ministry and work is centered around one thing. The person of Jesus Christ. If you step back, you can see this and how confusing what he says here can be. What does he say? Well, it's a quote from John the Baptist, but in the quote, he's quoting himself. <laughs> you see that? Layers here. The quote from John the Baptist, he's quoting himself. He says, like I'm always saying, like I've always said, he's talking about himself and what he's given himself to. And the central aim of all of his speech has been what? The central claim in all of his messages and all of his preaching and all of his declaring and all of his relationships has been what? This is he of whom I said. This is he. That Jesus Christ has been the center, the concentration, the core of all that he has given himself to. And so when Jesus shows up, John's like, there's the one that I've been talking about. Here he is, I've laid out the red carpet, here he comes. And this brings us back to this pressing question of why we aren't giving to telling of Jesus more in our own lives. See, it's not just risk, but it's because Jesus has not become the central aim of all our lives, of all our love and all of our dedication. For many of us, instead of exalting Christ, what do we find ourselves exalting? Find ourselves exalting the lesser things of this world, putting our hope and our trust and our joy on the things of this world. That's one of the reasons I think that God called John to live such a, a radical lifestyle. That he lived in such a, a radical way to show that he had no hope in anything else. Not find clothing, not find food, and not find homes. He's out in the wilderness, wearing animal skin, eating bugs. Now, I'm not saying again that we should model him in every way. But to give us a paradigm, we're told who John is. To give us a framework for our understanding of the depths to which Jesus Christ ought to be central to our entire existence. And so what do we mean when we say that Jesus should be the center of all that we do? What do we mean when we say all of Christ for, for all of our life? What fueled the ministry of John the Baptist was this, that the coming of the Messiah was the guiding light to everything that he did. Remember what verse 8 says again. Look back there. It says of John that he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. We might say it this way, 
the thing that drove John to declaring the glories of Christ was not his own personal strength or zeal. It was not that he was wise or charismatic or was just fulfilling his personality type that he learned doing some weird test. No, what drove John to declare over and over and over again to the point that he could say, this was he of whom I said. The thing that drove John to continue to declare the need for repentance and the glory of Jesus Christ was that he was altogether enamored with Emmanuel. He was altogether captivated and struck with the beauty of God with us. Friends, this is the same hope that we ought to center our entire lives on as well. Friend, especially if you're here today and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or, or you're unsure if you're actually a follower of Jesus, this is the trumpet that we want to blast in your ears today. That Jesus is worthy. That He is worthy of not only being the center of our lives, but He is worthy because He is life itself. That He is the Messiah. He is the one that was sent from God above. He is God with flesh on, the anointed Son who came into the world to cleanse us of all wickedness and rebellion. And John was in the wilderness baptizing, you remember, as a sign of the need for cleansing that only repentance could bring. But in that, it was only a picture, a shadow that pointed forward to the true cleansing. Friend, if you're here today and you were not a follower of Jesus, that is the question you must answer. Do you want to be cleansed? Do you want to be washed? Do you want to be renewed? Do you want to be made alive? And come to the life. And come to the only cleansing you will ever need in the blood of Jesus. The only thing that can wash us clean it is His blood. It is His death in our place and His handing over to us the life that He lived. Friend, if you're here today and you want to know more about that, more what it means to be a follower of this one who came and died, please find me after the service. I would love to talk to you more about that. But this, this is the hope that captivated John's heart and mind and flew from his lips. And friends, it is the same hope that flies from ours in song and in prayer and in the Word being preached. This is why dedicating yourself week in and week out to a local body of believers is essential to the Christian life. This is why giving yourself to, to, to a body of believers as imperfect as they may be is greater than any conference, than any podcast or any book that you will ever read. It's because in this gathering of people, we are able to speak the glories of Christ to one another in our specific situations, to build one another up, to correct one another, to encourage one another, and to drive one another to Christ. And Jesus will go on to say later in John 13, 35, that it is because of the love that we have for one another that the world will know who He is and that we are His. It's what the 1800s pastor Horatius Bonar calls consistent Christianity. He said it this way, If you're a Christian, be consistent. Be Christians out and out. Christians every hour in every part. 
Beware of half-hearted discipleship, of compromise with evil, of conformity to the world, of trying to serve two masters, to walk in two ways, the narrow and the broad, at once. It will not do. Half-hearted Christianity will only dishonor God while it makes you miserable. And yet, we are left with a nagging question, at least in my own heart. Maybe you're like me. How am I supposed to get there? I, I don't want to be a half-hearted Christian. I want to be consistent. I want to be like that. I want to be like John. How do I get there? And that's the question I really ask, just personally that I struggle with. If I'm honest with you, my question is, I always ask is, what must I do to be this zealous for Christ? You can ask my wife. Anytime that there's a problem that comes up in our family, my, my natural inclination is to try to solve it. It's to try to, to change this or, or pull us up by this way and try this thing or do that or make this maneuver, switch this up. Or if any of you are like that, that you hear this, you hear God's word and you hear the call of Christianity, you're like, what do I got to do? Give me the list, pastor. I'll get to work today. What must I do to be more like John and boldly speaking of Jesus? What must I do to be more consistent like the great saints of old? How can I give myself to the great cause of evangelism and discipleship? How can I train my children in the peaceful ways of God? How can I be as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove? The answer is simple. But it may very well be the hardest thing we ever do. Or should I say, we can never do without the help of God. And What is it? It is to see Jesus as He truly is. A view of Jesus, a true glorious view of Jesus is the only thing that could catapult us into zealous Christians who are consistent in our love of God and our declaration of God's Word to others. This brings us to the final portion of John 1.15. We find this is the exact thing that had transformed John himself. Look back at our verse one more time as we see the third thing, the exaltation. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, and now we're going to learn what John has said. And here it is. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So a right view of Christ is the only thing that can actually transform us into those who hold Christ as the very center of our lives and move us to exalt him in our hearts and declare him from our lips. And this right view, as we can come to see now, has been the central message of John throughout his entire ministry. And what was the view? Well, John lays out two things here that are keys to knowing Christ. Two general things he, he lays out that are keys to knowing Christ. But before I get to those, let's remember really quick, just real quick, who John is. Specifically, who John is in relation to Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about their, their place. I'm talking about actual relation. Do you remember that, that, that the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary so, so that she conceives Jesus in her womb? But she, if, if you read the Gospel of Luke, and perhaps you are during this season, is not the only one who's having a baby during this time. No, we find out that, that Mary's relative, Elizabeth, and her husband Zechariah, old in age, barren in their years, have also received some good news. Such good news that, that Zechariah doesn't believe it, and it leaves him without a voice for nine months, but that Elizabeth in her old age is going to bear a son as well. 
We find out that Mary, being a relative, learns of this miraculous conception so that her, a pregnant Mary, visits her kin, Elizabeth, and that the baby within Elizabeth, baby John, leaps within her and, as Luke 1.15 tells us, was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the mother's womb. This John, our John, John the baptizer, born to older parents, an only child, perhaps a bit of a loner, was born several months before Jesus is born to Mary. All of this is important not only in fueling our worship during the Advent season, as we take note of the power of God, but also because it helps us here in John 1.15 to understand what John is saying. He says, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What exactly does he mean? As I said, two things. First, John displays the supremacy of Jesus. He gives him the honor he deserves as the king of all kings, the true son of David. He does this when he says that he who comes after me ranks before me. We know this word rank. It's, it's a word that's often used in, in, in military and in government. What does it mean here? Well, it, is, it means the same exact thing it means for us. You got a major, you got a colonel, you got a general. So what is John saying here when he says that Jesus ranks before him? He's saying that no matter what my ministry is to speak the word of God to the people of God, to call them to repentance, I am simply preparing the way. I am simply the messenger. But there is one who is following me, who is the very message, the very word himself. And my job is to blast the trumpet that he is worthy. That he is worthy of all pomp and circumstance. That he is worthy of the very glory of heaven itself because he is the very glory of heaven itself. This is what we must come to understand about Christ ourselves. Is that his standing, his position, his place is far above all others. We must see and know that him as supreme in our lives, if we are ever to reflect that kind of worship that he deserves. It's similar to the show Undercover Boss. You guys ever seen the show? Know the show? Basically, here's the premise of the show. Somebody, a CEO who owns a company, he decides to dress up and puts on like a prosthetic nose and a mustache and some fake eyebrows, and he goes in undercover and works in whatever business he owns so he can get a feel for what it's like to be an employee. Right? And the show normally ends with him firing all the managers because they're mean jerks to, to all the employees or something like that. But the best part of the show is when the undercover boss rips his nose off and takes his eyebrows off, and you see on everybody's face that they suddenly realize who this is. It's the guy that owns everything. Friends, oh, what transformation we experience in our hearts and mind when we come to see Jesus for who he truly is. That the very glory of heaven veiled himself in human form so that he might walk among us, fulfilling, fulfilling the law's demands and offering self as a sacrifice for sin. Oh, what worship will pour forth when we know that he who ranks so high above us condescended so that he might know what it is to be man, sympathizing with us in our weakness. Oh, that the king may come a peasant for our sakes. John knew this, and his aim was then to make it known. 
As one pastor said, a good teacher like John the Baptist clears the way, declares the way, and then gets out of the way. And why? Because finally John understood one more fundamental truth to knowing Christ. And that's not just that He is the King, but He is God Himself. He says, He who comes after me ranks before me. Why? Because He was before me. But how can this last phrase be true? John was born several months before Jesus. So how was Jesus before John? And this is why I believe John, the author of this gospel, has placed this note here in verse 15, right here. To show us what this entire introduction has continued to point to. It is the same drum that has been beat over and over and over again. That should beat so loudly into those who deny the very divinity of Jesus Christ. Go read John 1, 1 through 18 and see the reality of what is proclaimed. That Jesus is God. That the only way that Jesus was before John is if He existed before John. And friends, John 1 tells us that He did. That He was there. That He is the everlasting Word. John the Baptist knew what we must be captivated by. That Jesus is the eternal Word made flesh. That all of creation was made through Him and for Him. That the Word that was in the beginning with God and God Himself that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. He that always was came to be. He who was everlasting stepped into time. He who was without form took the form of a servant. He who was life itself suffered death for our sakes. Oh, that we would see what John sees here. Oh, that we would be captured. Oh, that Christ would be known in our hearts so that He might be made much of in our lives. Do you see Him? Do you know Him? Can you speak of His wonders and His love? Do you sing with great joy? Do you pray with great anticipation? Do we preach with great conviction and unction? Where are we lacking in our homes? our jobs, and our church? Here's the answer. To know Christ as He truly is and to speak of His glories to all who might hear. Which brings me to somewhat of a conclusion. I say somewhat of a conclusion because i got a bit left here, so hang with me. Because I want to give us some points of application. Because you may be asking, why would we spend so long on a single verse? A single verse that's a parenthesis. If you go and look at most commentaries on John 1, they just skip right over verse 15. So why would I stand up here and give the better part of an hour talking about this? Hopefully you're not bored yet. Why not just chop this up and add it to the text for next week? What's God's intention here for us? Well, this week as I was preparing for this morning... I also had time to listen to a lecture from J.I. Packer, who's one of my favorite theologians who passed away just a few years ago. And the talk I was listening to this week was all about biblical revival and the marks of revival both in the Bible and in church history. And as I listened to it, I couldn't help 
but think about the ministry of John the Baptist and how he was kind of the topmost revival preacher who has probably ever existed. But at the same time, his confession of Christ boldly and courageously was not special to him. As we look through the generations, we see that every great move of God is marked by several key dispositions of God's people. And J.I. Packer notes five of them, and I want to give them to you as a closing application today. Five things that, that, just to put it bluntly, I think we need to grab onto and not let go of. Five marks that lead to great works of God amongst His people that we see held out here in the ministry and the fervor and zeal of John the Baptist, something we may take up in our own lives. So what are they? Number one, an awareness of God's presence. We see that with John, don't we? The first and fundamental feature of revival is the sense that God has drawn awesomely near us in His holiness and His mercy and His might. That in Christ, God comes, that He visits, that He draws near to His people and makes His majesty known. That we, like Isaiah, in His vision of God upon the throne, would hear and would know and would experience what the angels sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May we seek to know then God's presence with the Spirit inside of us and Christ in our midst. But the second thing then is a responsiveness to God's Word. When God is present, there begins a new authority in His truth. The message of Scripture, which was previously making only maybe a superficial impact in our lives, when we know God's presence, His Scripture begins to impress upon us in new and deeper and truer ways. And so we think about verses like Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God is living and active. That a mark of revival is when God's Word becomes that very thing, living and active, that it shapes us because it is sharper than a two-edged sword slicing and dicing where it sees fit. When God's message then is proclaimed, the gospel call to repentance, to faith and holiness, to praise and prayer, witness and worship, the Spirit then applies it to man's conscience there is no room for half-hearted Christianity like we talked about a moment ago, which leads us to the third thing that marks revival. We see this in John. We see this throughout history. It is a sensitiveness, a sensitivity to sin. As God moves and His Word is declared, there begins now to be a deep awareness of what things are sinful and how sinful we truly are. This is how Packer says it. Let me just summarize what he says here. He says, No upsurge of religious interest or excitement merits the name of revival if there is no profound sense of sin at its heart. God's coming and the consequent impact of His Word makes Christians much more sensitive to sin than they previously were. Consciences become tender and profound humbling takes place. And that humbling then leads to the fourth, a liveliness in the community. That as God's people have gathered together, what happens next? Not just that individuals are changed, but whole bodies are changed. And they're made alive. 
with the Spirit's coming, the fellowship with Christ is brought right to the center of our worship and our devotion. And the glorified Christ is shown and known and loved and served and exalted. Oh, consider what this does to us. We overflow in love and generosity and unity and joy and assurance and boldness. A spirit of praise and prayer and a passion to reach and win others. Mark us as His people. Which leads finally to the fifth mark of revival. And that is fruitfulness in our witnessing. Revival in the end always has an evangelistic and moral spillover into the world. Like a cup too full when God revives His church, new life overflows and outsiders are converted and brought in. Like John the Baptist, Christians become fearless in their witness and tireless in their service to the Savior. And so friends, I give you those five things as we consider John the Baptist. As we consider how he declared the glory of Christ. Because Christ was his all in all. Because he knew who Christ was. Friends, may we take up the same. Why? Because the one who has come, who ranks above all, is coming again. And he's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so may Christ be the declaration of our lips and the very exaltation of our lives. Let us pray. Oh God, we do pray and we ask that you would be at work in these days. That you would change us and mold us and shape us in ways that we could not fathom. That you would reveal your glory among us. That you would conquer and overcome our sin. You would change our hearts and our lives so that our cup of witness would overflow like John's. That those who walk in darkness may see the light. And that they may find life everlasting. It is in Jesus our life's name. We do pray. Amen.